I have four children, ages one, five, nine, and eleven. I hope I got that right. And in our house at night, it is a marathon of activity. It's like herding cats to get them all to go in the same direction, to get ready for bed, get the teeth brushed, get the hair brushed, maybe get showers or baths, get everything done, get all the pajamas on, clean up the toys, try to stop the fighting and the arguing and the bickering, praying and getting them in bed. And all this is going on while we've got an 11-year-old that's going to stay up later, and then we've got the baby that needs to you know, have all of her needs met by us. And so we're trying to juggle all this at once. And, and on a good night, we all get into the boys' bedroom. My two middle children are, are my boys, Ethan and Gibson, and, and they have bunk beds. And so we all meet in their room, and they're in their bunk beds, and we pray. And then it's time to say goodnight. And either myself or my wife will take the baby and put her in bed, and, and the 11-year-old goes off to do her reading or do her thing. And, and we're saying goodnight to the boys. And I lean down and I kiss Gibson. He's the youngest. He's on the bottom bunk. Kiss him. Good night. Good night, buddy. Have a great night. Then I stand up to give a good night kiss to Ethan, my nine-year-old. And I'm saying, good night, buddy. Have a great night. I'll see you in the morning. Hope, hope you just have sweet dreams and a good day at school tomorrow. And for some reason at that moment, Ethan tends to decide that he has a need. He has a need to have all of the deepest mysteries of the universe explained to him right then. And he can't wait. It can't wait till morning. He can't wait another minute. He always has a question. Daddy, where do rainbows come from? Daddy, how does this happen? Daddy, why does God do this? Now, I know, and you probably know, he's stalling. And so my typical answer is, buddy, you know what? Why don't we talk about that tomorrow? But sometimes the questions are really good. We're in a series called So Great a Salvation. And we're looking at this this thing called salvation that God gives us. What is it he has saved us from? How has he done it? Why did he send his son Jesus Christ? What is his plan? And today we're looking at God's great plan of salvation. And we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation. And it's this huge thing that has so many details that we could keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper and just stand more and more amazed at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I don't want us to lose the simplicity of what God has done. And so I want to start this morning by giving you kind of the the two-minute version or so. It probably won't actually be two minutes but about the two-minute version of how we could answer this to a child or to a baby Christian or somebody that doesn't even know Jesus when they say, as my son might say at night, what's God's plan? What's God's plan for me? Now, we might in that moment, we might be tempted to say, well, well, God wants you to be happy and we'll make God's plan very selfish toward us, that he'll give us what we want. But that's not really God's plan. It will bring happiness. I believe it. But God's plan is not first and foremost about our our happiness. We might say, well, God will show you his individual plan for your life, who he wants you to marry, the college he wants you to go to, the job he wants you to have. And we'll think about God's plan in this, this very individualistic way. And I believe it's true that God has a plan for each and every one of us. 
I believe he has ordained our steps and our days and our decisions. And he has a wonderful plan for each one of us. But before we can talk about that, and as important as that is, we need to understand what is so much more important. We need to understand what God's plan is for everything. Because if we can't fit our individual plans, our individual understanding of God's plan for us into his eternal plan of salvation, his great plan of salvation, we're going to get it wrong. And so that's what we're going to do. So let's start with, with this simple way of understanding God's plan. And I'm going to start with this diagram, and, and we'll fill it in in a moment. It'll be a little clearer as you, you see what's commonly known as the bridge illustration of our relationship with God. But it really starts with us and Him. God made us to have a relationship with Him. Genesis 1.26 says, We were created in the image of God, different than anything else, different than all the other aspects of creation, all the other creatures that God made. We are created in the image of God. And, and there's so much we can look at that that means. But at the basic level, it means we were made to have a relationship with God that is special. And God created us to be with Him and have this relationship You see, God made everything. He made everything in the world, and after every day of creation, God declares, it is good, it is good, it is good. He made all of creation wonderful and beautiful. In the earth, He creates a garden. And that's where He puts Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.8 tells us that at times, God even walked in the garden in the cool of the day. I think that's pretty neat, and I think it tells us a lot. It gives us just a little bit of a glimpse of the relationship God wants with us. He wants us to be right where He is, so that we can know Him, so that we can worship Him, so that we can enjoy who He is and all the incredible things He's given us. God helped Adam and Eve to understand this relationship in the form of two trees. He gave them the tree of life. And it was God's way of saying, I want you to have life, to be truly alive. I have made you to live forever with me. And there's no prohibition in Genesis from eating from the tree of good of life. In the garden, there's no restriction. God never told them when he created them, don't eat from the tree of good of, of uh, life. That one was free game. But then he put another tree in. And I think it tells us a lot about the relationship that God wants with us. And we called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what it means is that at the heart, we are never to be the ones to determine good and evil. That is God's job. And God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree. Now, let me step out of my Ethan story. So if you're timing me, just pause it for a second, okay? All right, let's step out of that for a second. Because somebody inevitably is going to come up to me afterwards and say, so you don't believe there were real trees? I do. I believe there were real trees with real meaning. God put them there for a point to communicate. Okay? All right, you can start the clock again. All right. So I would say, look, he wants us to have life in this ongoing, life-filled relationship of trusting him. But Adam and Eve did something. Something happened. They made a choice, and they ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by doing so, they took what was rightfully God's, the authority that was his, the responsibility, the sovereignty that was his, and they claimed it for themselves. We will determine good and evil. We will be like God. 
It's as if they kicked him off the throne and said, God, we don't need you anymore. We're taking your place. It wasn't just about eating a bite of fruit. It was so much more than that. And when they did that, some very bad things happened. This idea of this life and this trust that God had for them was broken. And they turned away and they said, we reject you as king. And so what they did, whether they knew it or not, was they set up their own kingdom. And that kingdom was characterized by death and confusion. Because they had rejected the standard of life, the author of life, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. There was only one other option. They rejected the standard of holiness, the giver of holiness, the standard of right and wrong. There was only one other option, and that is confusion. And so humanity set up their own kingdom apart from God. And we were separated from God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Sin is on our own, doing our own thing apart from God, and saying, God, we don't need you. We'll make our own decisions. That's what sin is. But God didn't leave us in that situation. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took all of our sin, all of the consequences of our sin, and he put it upon his son, Jesus Christ. And Christ bare or bore our punishment. He went to death for our sake. And he rose to new life, promising eternal life to all who believe. And he restored this relationship with God. There's a fire. <laughs> restored this relationship with God. He, that was you, wasn't it? That was my wife. Nice. Oh, was that, was it, you actually said a That was five minutes? I'm on Baptist time, thank you. Were you really timing me and it just went off? Nice. Okay, great. You didn't know it would make a sound, yeah. We'll talk later. (laughs) In Christ, this relationship that we have with God is restored. We're brought back to the new life that we were made for. And in this new life, we have a mission. We have a mission to reach out to others with this good news. To say you can have this relationship with God that you were created for. But it goes beyond that. Because we're looking forward to a time, and we looked at this in Revelation, as hard as it is, Revelation ends with this picture. God is with us. The thing he created us for in the Garden of Eden is restored, recaptured, renewed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God's plan lasts forever and ever. This is his plan. Now, I know in that moment, my son may be asking, what am I supposed to do, Dad? What job am I supposed to take? What person am I supposed to marry? Where should I live? I, I know when we think about God's plan for our lives, we have all those questions. But I think we need to start here. Because whatever God's individual plan for you, for me, for this church, for the church down the street, whatever it is, it must fit in this plan. Because this is what he's been doing from Genesis to Revelation. And I would say it's a huge mistake when we go off and we try to find God's individual plan for our lives and we ignore his plans for the whole universe. 
Because at various times in your life, you're going to have different ideas of God's plan individually for you. But you can always come back to this. God's plan for everything. So here's, it's a simple plan. I think it's very basic. I think it's something every child can understand. I think it's something every adult can understand. Are there questions? Of course there are. This is a huge thing. But now, I want us to understand that a simple plan does not mean it's shallow or weak. Because I think we have told our children the basics, and it's good, but we need to point them to the fact that there's so much more behind this simple truth. And I think as adults, we've held on to simple truths, and then we meet complex situations, and we lack depth to our faith to deal with those situations. So I want to go back, and I want to look again at God's great plan. And I want to walk through the same things, but I want us to go deeper, okay? Now, I have to warn you a couple things. Number one, this is one of my favorite sermons to preach. You've heard it before in many different forms. We did it in Revelation. We did it in the Gospel several years ago. I think I even did it in the Roman series. I love preaching from Genesis to Revelation. That being said, it's a little like drinking from a fire hose, okay? It's a lot at once. But I want you, at the end of this sermon, rather than coming away with all the little itty-bitty details, I want you to walk away going, wow, look at what God has done for us. That's what I want. I want us to be so amazed that we say, I want to know more. I want to go further. I want to go deeper into this relationship with him. So let's look back at creation. God created us to be with him. Again, he made this special place, this special relationship. Being created in the image of God means that we can worship him. We can reflect his nature in a way that nothing else can. We can make a choice to bring glory to God. That's different than anything else. That's a high privilege that we have in creation. In the same verse, it talks about the fact that we were created to care for and work creation and to use creation to rule over it. And I think the implied purpose is to bring glory to God. God says, I made this. Now I've put you in charge. Use it for my glory. And so every day you go to work or you're at home or you're watching kids or whatever it is, God has put things in your life, the rough stuff of creation. And he says, take it, use it for my glory. That's our call every day of our lives in a relationship with him to use the stuff of this world for his glory realizing it's all for him. But we have to look at sin. Oops, there we go. Life, trust, there we go. We have to understand that in sin, there's really two fundamental problems. First of all, in sin, we become broken. Our understanding of right and wrong was destroyed when we took what was not ours. You see, that's the great deception of Satan when he said, you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Adam and Eve were not created to be able to handle that. That was God's job. And so what we have in this world is the outcome of humanity determining good and evil. And all you have to do is look around to judge whether or not we're very good at that. And it's a mess, isn't it? And people always say, well, how could God allow such difficulty in the world? Such a mess. And you know my answer? We asked for it. We claimed it. We said, we've got this, God. We don't need you. And every moment since that time in the Garden of Eden 
has been us living out what we think is right and wrong. And it's a mess. We are confused. We are unable to accept what is right or wrong. You know, think about it this way. Let's imagine today after trunk or treat, you've got a kid and and they're sitting down at the table and they're just gorging themselves on Halloween candy, right? Their sugar levels are going through the roof. And you come to them and you say, sweetheart, I love you and I know what's best for you. Eat this broccoli. (laughs) And they've got a pile of candy sitting there. What are they going to do? Now, some kids maybe might say, yes, please, I want broccoli. But most of them are going to say, no way, are you kidding? This candy is so much better. Why? Do they know what's best for their body? No. Do they think they know what's best for their body? Yes. That's the brokenness of sin in our own lives. Even if God was to lay out perfectly for each and every one of us exactly what we should do to be a good person, we would not do it and we would not accept it. Because our ability to judge right and wrong is broken in sin. It's why we have to be careful when people just say, well, let's just use our reason, let's just use our, our, our rationality to come and determine what's right and wrong, and this just makes sense, therefore that's what God wants us to do. And I say, wait a minute, we believe we're broken. Why are we coming saying, let's just do what makes sense? What makes sense is broken. My ability to judge that is broken. We don't just need rules. We don't just need standards. We need fixing first. We are confused. The second big problem of sin is that we are guilty. God is king of this world. He created us to live under his authority in his kingdom, to enjoy all that he's given us, specifically to enjoy who he is. And we said, thanks, but no thanks. We've got this. We don't need you anymore. One author said sin is fundamentally the de-godding of God. Saying, God, I don't need you as my God. I've got this on my own. It's like we've kicked him off the throne and we've put ourselves there. Now, what is a righteous, holy, just king to do in a situation where people are living in his kingdom, actively trying to overthrow his authority? Is he just going to look at it and say, that's okay. Love wins. I just love you. No, that's not a good king. A good king says, I have a purpose and you're undermining it. I have a plan. I created you for something and you have destroyed that. I had a law and you have broken it. There must be justice. We have guilt that needs to be dealt with. There is a penalty for our sin and it is death. Now we can think of this as a natural consequence. If God is the author of life and we choose to go a different way, what is the other way? Well, it's going to be death. Death is a natural consequence of sin, but it's more than that. It's also the righteous and just punishment of an all-holy God upon a sinner who has rebelled against him. But we need to understand sin. Picture this. A child comes home. You can tell my kids have been on my mind a lot lately. This actually happened recently. A child comes home, and uh, not to me, of course, not to us. Comes home, gets off the bus, walks in the door. You say, do you have any homework? They say, no. Oh, really? I got it all done. Now that child in that moment wants to go play. They might know they left their homework at school. They might know that that they have it in their bag, but they don't really want to do it. And they are lying. Is lying a sin? Yes, it's wrong. 
So we look at that and we say, okay, that's a sin. Now over here, you have a guy. Maybe he's been laid off of his job. And he goes, and, and for months he plans to go into his work. And he grabs a gun and he goes into his work and he shoots a whole bunch of people dead. He's a murderer. Planned, premeditated. Out of anger, out of wrath, he goes in and he does this horrible thing. Is murder a sin? Yes. So now the world looks at us and says, wait a minute, you just said what your kid did with his homework is the same as what this guy did with killing all these people. How can I serve a God like that? That is not fair. You see, we are judging the expression of the sin. That's not what God looks at. He looks at the essence and the heart of the sin. So let's back up for a second. That child, when he came home, made a decision consciously or unconsciously, made a decision. I want to get what I want, and I know the best way to get it, and it is to lie. So I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to do this. And so he lies. So we come over here to the murderer. The murderer didn't like what happened. He wants to get what he wants. He wants to feel the way that he wants. And he comes up with a plan to get what he wants. And he says, I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. I don't care what they think. I'm going to do what I want to do. Do you see the similarity? Now, are the consequences in society the same for each of those? No. One is horrific uh, loss of human life. The other is probably a timeout or, you know, needing to do your homework or something or a missed assignment. No, the consequences of those two sins in our world and our society are not the same. That's not what we're saying as Christians when we say all sin is equal. The consequences of the sins on an earthly level are different. But the heart of the sin is exactly the same. All sin is saying, I am right and I don't care what anybody else says. Now, take that from the perspective of God looking down upon us. He is all holy, all knowing, all righteous. He created us to know Him, to live in this perfect relationship with Him. And now to Him, we are saying, God, I know best. Do you understand the depths of the sin of the human heart? We're so busy judging the effects of sin. We're so busy judging the outwards expressions of sin. We need to go deeper and understand the essence of sin comes from a rebellious heart. I am right and everything else is wrong. That's why sin is so bad. It is the conscious overthrow of God and of all authority in our lives. God is looking at the heart 1 John 3, 4 describes sin as lawlessness. It's a good way of thinking about it. Lawlessness is saying nobody else has the right to tell me what to do. I have the right to make that decision. That's the essence of sin. Even if it's unintentional, it is active rebellion against God. So here we are. In sin, we are separated from the Almighty Creator who made us, who wants this perfect, loving relationship. It is a horrific thing that has set us against Him and separated us from Him. But this series is about salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is God's work to fulfill God's plan to be with us. 
Salvation is God's work to fulfill God's plan to be with us. It is the sum total of every scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It is the sum total of what God has been doing in your life. It is the sum total of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is God's effort to fulfill God's plan to be with us. God's plan is for us to be with him. But think for a moment. If we have set ourselves up in sin as the standard of righteousness, the standard of right and wrong, and God just shows up and says, hey, God, he, guys, here I am. And don't people want that all the time? Man, God, if you would just show yourself to me, I would follow you. You know the truth of it? Is that if God showed up and just showed himself to us, you know what we would say? I don't get it. I reject it. Because our standard of right and wrong is so messed up. When the truth comes, we don't have the capability of understanding it. We are broken. So God has to deal with our brokenness to help us to understand who He is. And then He has to deal with our guilt. So first, God must establish a relationship with us so we know who He is. God has to come to us first because there's no way we can come to God. Now, I know at this point, as New Testament believers, as modern-day Christians, we want to jump right into Matthew, and we want to look at Jesus as our Emmanuel. But it starts before that. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, and he says, I want to be with you. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. And God reaches into this sinful, messed up world, and he grabs a hold of Abraham, and he says, I'm going to have a relationship with you. And it's based on me and who I am and my purposes, not based on you. God initiates. And then from Abraham, he forms this group of people, the Israelites. And it's a group of people that that are under God's love and His protection, a group that He has a relationship with. And they don't even understand this amazing thing and this amazing God who's made this relationship with them, but they're learning something. And the Israelites find themselves in a situation in Egypt where they are trapped. They are stuck. They cannot possibly get out of this situation on their own. And God comes to Moses and he says, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go because I'm about to do something that nobody has ever seen before. And God rescues his people out of Egypt. He saves them from a situation that they could never get out of. And it's so interesting, after he saves them, he brings them into the desert to Mount Sinai. And he says, I want you to learn something about me. And he gives them the law. And the law starts with the Ten Commandments, right? And we've talked about this before. In, in our numbering of the Ten Commandments, uh, law number one is thou shalt not have any other gods before me, right? But in the Hebrew order, law number one is I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. It starts with a statement of who he is. Everything that happens comes out of that. All the rest of the law is based on who God is. And I love that. And I think we need to recapture that. Because we walk into it with this mindset of, God, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Just tell me what to do, and I will do it. I will reorder my life. And God says, you know what you need to do? You need to know who I am. And that's exactly what he did with the Israelites. 
And then you know where he goes after the giving of the Ten Commandments? The bulk of the law is centered on the tabernacle. Why? Because God wanted a really nice place to live? No, he had a really nice place to live. Because he wanted the Israelites to understand what it meant to be his people with him dwelling among them. And they had no concept of that. They had no concept of what it would mean to be God's people with his presence dwelling among them. Their standards of right and wrong had to be completely called into question, completely tweaked and rewritten, and that is exactly what the law is. So many of us today have been brought up saying, oh, the law was one way of salvation in the Old Testament, and now we have Jesus, a better way of salvation. I don't believe that at all. The law was never meant to save. Paul makes that abundantly clear. The law was never meant to save. It was to communicate into a sinful, broken world the very character and nature of God. That's what the Old Testament is all about. That's what the tabernacle was all about. And then later, God sends prophets to speak to his people, to bring them to repentance, to come back to the land, to say, I want to be with you. It's the ongoing message of the Old Testament. And all of that is a crucial part of God's plan in this sinful, messed up world. God came to us first. And then, of course, we have the incarnation. Matthew one twenty three, Mary was told Jesus is to be called Emmanuel which means God with us. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we read, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe. We are talking about a God who wants to be known. God wants you to know who He is. He's not some great cosmic mystery that's standing out there beyond all ages and all times and saying, hey, you guys just need to figure it out and I hope you get it right. He says, I've done everything to come to you in your sinful, messed up, confused, sinful state to show you who I am and to communicate who I am to you to help us to get it. Second, God's justice must be upheld. God is a holy, righteous judge. We have committed a grievous sin. And we are guilty. And that guilt must be punished. Otherwise, God's righteousness will never be maintained. And so God, in his infinite justice and holiness, and also love and grace and mercy, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he took our guilt, and he put it on his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was perfect. Therefore, he was qualified to be a perfect substitute for us. The price for your sin is paid. People say salvation is free. It's not true. Salvation is not free at all. It costs life. The glory of God and the grace of God is that it didn't cost our life. It cost God's. It cost Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21, listen to how he ties together in this passage the Old and the New Testament. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So what he's saying is the law was one example, one demonstration, one communication of God's righteousness, but how much better now is the communication in Jesus Christ? 
But now a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Around the time of Joseph and Mary, God didn't wake up one day and say, man, I've had it all wrong. I think I've got a better plan right now. He continued what he had been doing throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Communicating with us and providing a way of salvation. Everything in the Old Testament testifies to Jesus Christ. It looks forward to and prepares the way for us to understand Jesus and for us to be saved by Jesus. And this salvation brings new life. And we're going to be looking at this throughout the rest of the series as we look at the benefits of salvation, what Christ has done in our hearts by saving us from our guilt, by cleansing us from our sin, by reuniting us with Christ. We're going to look at all these wonderful theological themes that are so full of depth and meaning. But let me give you just a few here. The thing that you were created for is exactly the thing that you are saved for you have been restored to a right relationship with God through Christ. Now here's the catch. We still live in this sinful, messed up world. We're saved. We're restored to right relationship with God. But we still live here. And there's a reason for that. Because God has a mission for us. Just as he did for Israel in the Old Testament, he now has a mission for the church to say, you are my people. You are now a communication of who I am to this lost and dying world. When they look at us, they need to see Jesus. That is the high calling of the church. It's also why I believe the the New Testament teaches over and over and over again, you should not, and I would even dare to say, cannot be a Christian apart from the church. It is together in the messiness of life that we best demonstrate the glory and the character and the nature of God. The New Testament does not know of a Lone Ranger Christian. We are called to be the church together. We're going to look at that in several weeks. We have a mission to do. And as we live in this world, we have to have a focus on the kingdom that is yet to come. We can't get so bogged down in this kingdom of this world, this life that we've created to say, well, let's just figure out what works now. Churches are doing that all the time. Let's just figure out how to get more people in the pews. Let's just do whatever it takes. That cannot be our starting point. Our focus is on God and His character, His righteousness. That has to be our starting point. That has to inform everything we do. So what is God's plan for you? God's plan for you is to be with Him. That's it, in a nutshell. It's simple, isn't it? And yet, so profound. 
as we read scripture and, and we get into these, these intricacies of what God has done, we need to read that as our story. It's us. We are in that story. God has spoken to us, reached out to us, has claimed us and called us, and now is working through us. We are the continuation of what God has been doing ever since the book of Genesis. It's the same plan, the same great God, and he never gives up. His plan is to be with us. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus called his disciples by saying, follow me. Come on and follow me. And I love that. He didn't sit them down and say, do you believe in me? Can you check the boxes of your theological system to say that you align your beliefs with my beliefs and we are in agreement and then yes, you are a part of me? He didn't say that. He said, look guys, just come with me. Just come. And, and you know what? I think that's a great way of looking at creation. It's like when God, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, guys, I made you. Just come with me. Just follow me. Just trust me. When God called Abraham, he said, just come on. Just follow me. In the tabernacle, he said, I'm going to be with you. Just follow me. And Jesus came and he said, I'm going to be with you. Just follow me. And the message of the gospel as it goes out to every person is a message. Just come on. Come to Jesus and be where he is and follow him. And the end of Revelation is the great cosmic answer of God saying, come with me. God's dwelling is now with people. What a beautiful picture of what it means to have salvation. We need to understand that all of God's plan depends on God's efforts. I hope as I've laid this out very briefly today, I hope you don't leave this place going, man, I need to try harder. Because that is the wrong response. I hope as we've walked through this, if anything, you've stopped and said, man, there's nothing I can do about that. That has to be all God. Because the truth is, it was efforts to try harder to do their own thing that got Adam and Eve in trouble in the first place. And it's the efforts on the part of humanity to say, God, we've got this. I'm just going to work on my life and then I'll come to you. And that gets us in trouble over and over and over again. And God says, you can't do it. I've done it for you. Salvation is by grace or there is no salvation at all. We cannot save ourselves. And it is God's great plan to be with us. Salvation is not first and foremost about our happiness. It is not God coming to us and saying, what will make you happy? If you could give me your Christmas list of everything that will make you happy, then I will do those things for you because you've been saved. That is not the way God looks at it. Will salvation in general make you happier? I think so. But that's not the point of it. It is God's plan to be with us. And I believe we will find that there is a happiness that is indescribable in the presence of God. It is so greater than anything we could ask or imagine. Salvation is not about fulfilling our dreams or or ordering the world to be the way we want it to be. Sometimes people come to Christ and then they give their life to Christ and then they look at their life and they say, it's still a mess. They say, wait a minute, God, I'm saved. I mean, aren't you just going to fix everything in my life? That's not what salvation is about. Salvation is about God fixing the whole world. And there's a messiness along the way. And we need to trust him for that and keep on following. Sometimes we use an analogy, and I've done this myself, that salvation is a gift. Maybe you've shared the gospel with somebody and you get to the end and you say, I just want you to imagine a present and it's right here and and Jesus Christ is holding it out to you and it's salvation and all you have to do is reach out and take it. It's, it's, It's a neat 
illustration of the freedom of salvation and how we need to accept it by faith. But it has one fundamental problem. Because if Jesus is here holding out salvation, I could turn and take that box, that beautifully wrapped present of salvation, and I could take it and I could walk away and leave Jesus right there and say, Jesus, thank you for my salvation. I'm going to go live my life now. And I think that that's exactly how we viewed salvation. In salvation, Jesus doesn't give us something. He gives us himself. And so we must never separate our salvation with our relationship with Jesus Christ. And throughout the rest of this sermon series, we're going to look at understanding salvation as being in Christ. In fact, that's going to be the topic next week. What does it mean to be in Christ What does it mean to look again at our salvation and say that it's all in and through Jesus Christ? Not just this gift that he lobs into eternity and says, have fun. The greatest gift of God is giving himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, these things are simple on one level and yet so deeply profound. And part of the depths of this and why it's hard at times to understand what you're doing is that we are sinners. And there's so many things that we want to say, but wait a minute, what about this? Or that doesn't make sense with what I think. That doesn't line up with my expectations. And we want to sit in judgment on you and your plan and your history and the way you've worked things out for your glory. And God, that is not our place. You are God. We are not. And yet as God, You looked into our sinful, confused, rebellious situation and you loved us. And you reached into history in the Old Testament and you reestablished a relationship. You communicated who you are and then you reached in again in in such a better way in the person of Jesus Christ as God with us. And you not only communicated, you provided a way out. Thank you for giving us yourself. May we live each and every day in response to this salvation, living out this new life with you, on mission with you in this world, and looking forward to the kingdom that is to come. In your name we pray. Amen.